God is a working God. He never stops working. Jesus said, my father is working and I am working. Susan and I were blessed just this past week to be with a, a number of people who serve with Live Global, which is an outreach ministry that we are connected with, and uh, it was dozens and dozens and dozens of uh, folks there at that conference, and what an incredible thing to hear the stories of the great works of God. God's at work. He's doing great things. And it's wonderful to know sometimes when you're not seeing it in your own vision or feeling it in your own heart, God's still doing great things. And we always can have hope because of that. And I'm so grateful for this theme that has been our focus here this morning, to have hope and express that hope and that confidence in the Lord. It's a great day here at the church as we've begun, you know, the equipping classes, the student groups started again, the Sunday school classes for the children, and just sort of a time of new beginning. And a time of new beginning like this is a time for us to consider also maybe a, a moment of new beginning for us. Wonderful thing, thing about our Lord that the Lord always has for us, by His grace, a slate that we can write upon a fresh new story, right? We're thankful for that. He's not just the God of the past, He's the God of the present and the future. And this morning, regardless of whatever struggles you may be bringing, hardships you're going for, there is hope and the Lord will make that hope alive today as you look to Him. And I want us to look at that passage of great hope that uh, Al just read for us. Let's turn to Luke chapter 17, if you would. We've been making a journey through this uh, gospel for a number of months. And it's filled with encounters of God's grace. And we see an amazing encounter of that grace this morning that we want to focus on. And as you're turning there to Luke 17, I want to remind you about a man by the name of Martin Rinkert. Martin, Martin Rinkert. And he was a highly trained and fairly well-known uh, mid-century musician and songwriter. You may say, well, I've never heard of Martin Rinkert. Well, that might be because it was the middle of the 17th century. <laughs> Martin Rinkart lived in the early mid-part of the 17th century in Germany. And Martin was trained at the University of Leipzig, which was one of the elite universities of the day. Still considered that in Europe. He had a deep love for the Lord, had incredible gifts for music. And God greatly used those gifts, even as he was just a young man. But he also had a heart to know the Lord and his word and to share his word. And so he not only got advanced degree in uh, music, and composition, 
He also got an advanced degree in theology. And Reichert, as a young man, was assigned to be what we would basically say would be an assistant pastor at St. Anne's Church in Eisleben, Germany. Now, just so happened a hundred years or more earlier, Eisleben was the hometown of Martin Luther, and uh, St. Anne's was his home church. Now, after the incredible progress of the Reformation, this was a, a Lutheran church, and Martin Reichardt became one of the assistants there. He served, and then... Because of his great musical abilities, he was called to serve in another Lutheran church in Eilenburg, which happened to be his hometown. So he went back to his hometown of Eilenburg to serve on staff of a church. The year after he arrived there is when there was the outbreak of what is known now as the Thirty Years' War. The Thirty Years' War. And I'd like, if I might, just to give us a context here, to read for you a, a description of the Thirty Years' War and Martin Reichardt's ministry during that time in his hometown of Eiselberg. This comes from Breakpoint Ministries says the Thirty Years' War was the most destructive war ever fought in Germany, including World War I and World War II. The war began as a conflict over religion in the nearby kingdom of Bohemia. In principle, the war was fought between the Catholic Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II and his allies on one side, and the Lutheran princes in the empire and their allies on the other. In practice, it was far messier than just a religious war. For example, the Catholic emperor had a ruthless Protestant general leading his armies named Albrecht Wallenstein. And the Protestant princes were funded by Catholic France. So it wasn't really about religion. It also drew in most of the other countries of Europe. The Swedes and the Danes came in on the side of the Lutherans and Spain on the side of the emperor. The Dutch Republic was fighting for independence from Spain. So they also joined the war and France got involved militarily to take down their old rival Spain. In the midst of all this was Eilenburg, a wall city. And it became a refuge for people fleeing the war. And as troops came through the area, Pastor Rinkart and others had to quarter them in their homes, and their goods were regularly plundered by these soldiers. Not surprisingly, food was often scarce. To make matters worse, in 1637, the plague arrived in Eislandberg. Of the four clergy in Eislandberg, the superintendent or 
who will be known as the lead pastor today, decided he needed fresh country air, so he left town. Two of the other pastors died of the plague. And Rinkhart was left alone to tend the sick and to bury the dead. He performed up to 50 funerals a day. In all toll, he conducted over 4,400, including his wife's own funeral. When the death toll got too high for individual funerals, trenches were dug for the mass burials. In all, over 8,000 citizens of the city died. Huge percentage of the population. After the plague came famine. Surviving accounts say that food was so scarce that 30 or 40 people would fight in the streets over a dead cat or crow. Rinkhart gave so much of his money to charity to feed the hungry that he was forced to mortgage several years of his income just to feed and clothe his own children bereft of their mother. Surprisingly, given the difficulties of his life, the hymns that Rinkhart penned were full of praise and trust in God, even when they spoke of the troubles afflicting Germany and all of Central Europe. His best-known hymn was written for his children as a song the family would sing before dinner. Here's the song. Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices who wondrous things has done in whom this world rejoices who from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. Oh, may this bounteous God through all of our life be near us with ever joyful hearts and blessed peace to cheer us and keep us still in grace and guide us when perplexed and free us from all ills in this world and the next. All praise and thanks to God, the Father now be given, the Son and the Spirit be blessed, who reign in highest heaven, the one eternal God whom heaven and earth adore, for thus it was, is now, and shall be forevermore. What a testimony. And what a challenging example. We think we have problems in our country. We think that we are facing insurmountable situations that should justify us losing all joy and hope. That should somehow free us to spew out venom and anger and judgment and much more heat 
than light? How could Martin Rinkert possibly pen such words in the midst of death and grief and unexpressible suffering? One reason. One reason only because Martin Rinkhart was overwhelmed by a greater force within him than all the forces outside of him. Even though life around him was like an open sewer, in his heart was a never-ending, internal, eternal fountain of gratitude for God's grace. That's why this man could praise God in the midst of such terrible experiences. He possessed an attitude of gratitude because he was grateful for grace, God's grace. There was a power in him greater than all the power around him. And that was the power of the grace of God that filled his heart with gratitude to his Lord in the midst of a world gone crazy. He was grateful for grace. Now this morning in Luke chapter 17, we have a, a timeless example of gratitude for grace. And also we have a timeless warning of being a disgrace to grace. Now Pastor Al's read this passage for us. It's not one that ought to be divided up in an outline that all begins with the same letter. <laughs> Preferably P's. P's work good. But let's just consider it this morning. Here's what I want us to do. Let's just reap what God has in this passage. Let's read through it. Let's examine it. And then most of all, friends, let's apply it to our hearts. Let's pray about it personally. Now listen to Luke's description of what happened. Verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Now, it's important to understand he's headed toward Jerusalem. He's headed toward what will be his suffering death and his glorious resurrection. He's passing through literally no man's land. This is a road between Galilee, his home region, and Samaria, a land that is filled with people hated by the Jews. So he's traveling through no man's land. Everyone's a little bit on edge. Verse 12. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. And they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, 
Master, have mercy on us. Now as Jesus is approaching this village located in no man's land, suddenly a dreadful sight approaches causing great dread among all the people there, not just a leper, ten lepers. These ten lepers, as they approached, are a horrible sight to behold, let alone the terror that it put in people's hearts in their fear of the contagiousness of their affliction. These ten lepers are diseased. They are disheveled. They're just rags hanging off of them. Can you see them? They're diseased and disheveled. They are literally decaying. This horrible illness which deadens the nerves is slowly causing injuries that lead to death of body tissue. They're decaying. They're disgusting. They look like they've just walked out of their tombs. They are the ultimate expression of the walking dead. Ten of them approaching Jesus in rags croaking out, calling for mercy. No doubt, some of the followers did what they had been trained to do all their lives. They reached down to pick up a stone, because in Israel, you're never far from a stone. It just produces rocks. You ever been there? And, and they're about to throw stones at these ten lepers. But they won't stop. The idea here is they're, they're not just asking once, but with their, their croaking voices, they continually are pleading, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. What would Jesus do? Well, it's interesting. Jesus didn't do anything. Jesus said something. He said something. Verse 14, notice what he said. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now, why did Jesus say, go show yourselves to the priest? Because this was the commandment in the Old Testament. That if someone had a contagious disease, before they could return to the community, before they could live within the community, before they could come even for worship or certainly approach the temple, a priest had to examine them. So priests had a duty not just serving in the temple, but they also were somewhat what we would consider the public health officials of the day. And they would 
examine a person, and then if the person had a house, they would come and examine his house to make sure that it was free from any sign of contagion. And so Jesus did nothing. It's interesting. He didn't touch them. He just said, go show yourselves to the priest. Now this is amazing. What Jesus is asking them, this is amazing. He's asking them to respond as if they are healed lepers. They have been lepers for years, many of them. And now Jesus, at his command, is telling them to act as healed lepers and go show themselves according to the word of God to the priests. Now we can imagine <laughs> there's some confusion here. No doubt for a moment these ten men are looking at each other. It, it could be maybe a moment like, say what? <laughs> That's it? Aren't you going to touch us? Embrace us or at least sprinkle a little holy water on us or something. But these lepers responded to what Jesus commanded. They turned around in their decaying flesh, in their rags, and they started walking away to find the nearest priest. It's amazing. And as they were responding to what Jesus commanded them to do, they were healed. As they were responding to what Jesus commanded them to do, though the command made really no sense, He's commanded, they obey, and while they are obeying, by the power of his will, imagine this, this is the power of Jesus, by the power of his will, just his will goes out and heals them. Amen. That's our Jesus. He healed them. <laughs> now, I, all week long and more, I've been imagining this scene. These ten men turn and they start trudging as they always have, to go find a priest, trudging. And then the pace quickens a little bit. Feeling a little better today. And then I can just imagine one of them looks up and looks at another one, and maybe it was something like this. He, he, he looks at Joshua next to him. He says, hey, Josh. You're looking pretty good today. No, 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 seriously, man. You're looking real good. And then he looks around. Guys, we're all looking good. Look at us. 
we look, we looking great. And you can imagine they start celebrating. And you can almost imagine they, they high-five each other. Now they don't have to worry about having a finger drop off or something. They're just celebrating. I mean, this is amazing. I was thinking about it. Some weird reason. I don't know why my brain doesn't have a reason sometimes. I thought of that Christmas song that says, you know, ten lords a-leaping. Right, here we got ten lepers a-leaping, okay? And they're, they're leaping and they're shouting and they're praising. And, and they become a parade of praise. They're not shuffling anymore. They still got the the rags hanging off of them, but they've been made new. Now they got strong lungs and strong legs, and they are having a time. And they are praising, and they are going as quickly as they can to the home of the nearest priest. All of them, except one. Except one. One. Stops in his tracks. And he turns around. And he looks at Jesus, who no doubt is still looking at them. And the man begins to walk. And then he begins to do something he hasn't done in ages. He begins to run. Run on those legs. Straight back to Jesus. And here's what happens. Verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And I love this loud voice. It's megaphones. <laughs> you know, we get our megaphone. That's, this is mega praise. <laughs> He is praising God. He is loud. And he comes loudly praising God. He's running. And you can imagine the crowd like, whoa, 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 whoa. Not so sure. And he runs straight to Jesus. Verse 16, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks, which means here literally, he's ceasingly giving him thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Praise you. Thank you, Master. Thank you, Lord Jesus. That's the idea. He's ceasingly giving thanks. And then Luke inserts this statement. Now, he was a Samaritan. One of the ten. One of the ten in the wonder of his healing, became a worshiper. He became a worshiper. And he comes as an uninhibited worshiper. He, he is just uninhibited in his praise because of what the Lord has done for him. And he is an the most unlikely worshiper. 
I mean, you have to understand this. This man who comes back, he, it says he was a Samaritan. You understand what that means? It means not only was he a leper and an outcast is a leper, but he's a Samaritan and he's outcast because he's a Samaritan. He's an outcast to the second power. He's an outcast of the outcast. You can't imagine anyone. There was no one in Israel considered more of an outcast than this man. A leper who is a Samaritan. Who is considered by the Jews to be of an ungodly mixed race. Who considered by the Jews to be unworthy of notice who practiced a a religion that was partially pagan and partially Judaism. The hatred had gone back centuries. He was the ultimate outsider. A Samaritan and a leper. But now, what's his identity? He's a worshiper. This is an amazing teaching moment. And notice how Jesus teaches. He teaches out of his own amazement. Now you have to understand, Jesus is fully God and fully man. So that everything that can be said about God can be said about Jesus. And everything that can be said about a man apart from sin can be said about Jesus. So here is Jesus, and he is amazed. He's amazed. Verse 17. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God? Except this foreigner? You see, Jesus himself here is speaking out of amazement, but he's using the amazing thing that has happened to even heighten the unlikelihood of what has happened and the unlikelihood that of all of these ten men, evidently the other nine were Jewish, Out of these ten, the one who is a foreigner comes to praise the God and Messiah of Israel. Where are the nine? Now Jesus asked a question. Now listen. When Jesus asks a question, it's not because he needs information. (laughs) When Jesus asks a question, it's not because he needs information. He asks a question to give us illumination. And that's what he does here. You see, the question he asks, where are the nine, is not a question about their position. He and the others can look and off yonder there is still that parade of nine men shouting celebrating 
headed for the priest's home. He doesn't ask this question about their position. He asks the question to call attention to their disposition. Where are the nine? Did I not just heal ten? Where are the nine? Here's the question. Were they, were all ten healed? And here is an answer I want you to consider. Yes and no. Yes and no. Yes. Nine of these ten were physically healed. But only one of the ten shows evidence that he was physically healed and spiritually healed. He gives evidence that his healing has not just been physical, it's been spiritual. And he gives evidence because he has become a worshiper. He comes to Jesus as a worshiper. He falls at his feet and then I just love this, this ultimate outcast, the ultimate outcast receives from Jesus the ultimate welcome. Verse 19. Can you imagine hearing this from Jesus? And he said to him, Rise, get up, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Can't, can't you just see it? Jesus is asking his disciples, we're not ten healed down at his feet, clinging to him. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Master. Lord, thank you. You see the scene? His arms wrapped around Jesus, praising and worshiping him. Jesus saying, we're not ten healed. Where are the nine is only this one here, a foreigner, return to give glory to God? And then, so beautifully, Jesus stoops down, puts his hands on this man's ragged shoulders, those tatters he's wearing, puts his hands on his ragged shoulders, and he looks into his fresh face. And says, go your way. Listen carefully. Here's the literal translation. Go your way. Your faith has saved you. The word healing here is a word that is connected to the word for salvation. It's the same thing that Jesus said to another person at his feet back in chapter 7. You remember? A woman who was known to be a woman of the streets, a, a woman of low morals, who had been healed by Jesus, comes and is anointing his feet. 
wiping them with tears, drying with her hair. And Jesus said to her, your faith has saved you. It's the exact same expression. Rise, go your way. Your faith has saved you. What a moment, right? And what a moment for us. I hope you've just gone back and put yourself in this scene. Imagine yourself to be one of the disciples there. But, but now, what we have to understand is that this has been put in the Scriptures for us. It is part of the eternal Word of God. Throughout eternity, this story will remain. So it is timeless. So if it is timeless, that means it's timely. That means it's for this moment in your life and my life. It means it's not an accident that you were here this morning or you were watching this morning for this living Word of God to come to you. Eternity is in this moment. And God has some lessons, some living lessons from these lepers. that I just quickly give to you. Lessons from the nine and lessons from the one. Number one, there's a living lesson here. Don't forget it about the mission of Jesus. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. The cross is before him. He knows the result of what this trip is going to be. In just a few weeks, he's going to say... If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. I will draw mankind to myself. If I'm lifted up, that's the reason he's going. That's the reason he's going to suffer. Because he can see people through the ages and around the world being drawn to the Father. Because he's been lifted up as the Savior. Jesus was lifted up on a cross outside of his own city. So that outsiders can become insiders to his heavenly city. Jesus was lifted up. The king of the Jews on a cross outside of his own city. The city of the great king. And he was lifted up on that cross so that people who are outsiders from the kingdom can come into the kingdom and can be residents of the new Jerusalem which will never be destroyed. That's the mission of Jesus. Jesus is working. He's doing this every day. I believe by faith and hope and in the power of the Word of God, He's doing it in this room this morning. He's doing it out as people are watching. He is being lifted up as the Savior and He is drawing men and women to Himself.
We see not only here a lesson about the mission of our Savior, but there's a message here for us to remember about the condition of mankind. The condition of mankind. Friends, listen carefully what I'm about to say. These lepers, these lepers should not remind us of mankind at its worst. These lepers remind us of mankind at its best. The Bible says all our righteousnesses before God are as what? Filthy rags. Our very best is so polluted by our sinful hearts and minds and motives that it is as filthy rags to God. Our righteousnesses, our self-righteousnesses are like a leper offering up his bandages to save his soul. The most stinking thing to the nostrils of a holy God is when people believe they have the ability to fix themselves. And they offer up their good works. That's the worst. These lepers do not represent mankind at its worst, but at its best. What must the worst be? You see, self-righteousness is self-deception. If you have a particle of a belief, my friend, that when you stand before God, there's going to be some kind of measurement of what you've done for God and the things that you've done wrong, if that is in your mind, friend, that is deception. The only hope that when we stand before God of being accepted is not our righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen. And when we stand with Him as our substitute, we are accepted as a beloved child in His righteousness. Third lesson here, there's a deception. Friend, listen carefully to this deception. Listen carefully. With all of my heart as pastor in this day and pastor for nearly these 35 years, I am telling you what I'm about to say. It, my opinion is the greatest of all deceptions. It is the deception of self focused happiness the deception of self-focused happiness the nine were happy you talk about happy they're happy for their new condition what's the terrible tragedy here their happiness is only skin deep their happiness is only skin deep deep. Here is the greatest deception I can imagine. 
and I believe I encounter it continually. It's the danger of a satisfaction with a better life rather than a transformed heart by Jesus Christ. I am blessed. And because I'm blessed, because things are going well, God must have favor with me. That is complete deception. Never be satisfied with external happiness. Make sure that you rather will not relent until your heart is changed by the grace of God. What is a blessed life? Do you understand, friends, that because of our sin, our minds have been darkened? Our minds are broken. Sin is not just evil. Sin makes us stupid. We don't know what a blessed life is. What is a blessed life? This is what a blessed life is, and this life alone. A life of God-focused joy. That's blessed. Blessing is not in your bank account. You say, you're telling me. Blessing is not the fact that you're just having health, though you may be thankful for your health right now. But what's, that's, that's skin deep. People are satisfied with the condition of their souls because their religion has made them happy skin deep. The blessed life is God focused joy and that's the lesson we learn here from the one leper the expression of savior focused worship savior focused worship for this samaritan there was something greater in his eyes than his healing what could be possibly greater in his eyes than his healing you know what was greater in his eyes than his healing his healer the one who healed him. It was not the blessing that was most valuable. It was the blesser. Amen. Jesus was the treasure. And before he went running for a priest, he wanted to go running to his Savior and thank him and worship him as the great joy of his life. His worship was personal. It was personal because he's praising God for what Jesus had done for him. Friend, I want to ask you, how much of your worship is because of what Jesus has done for you? How many of us, since we started to the church this morning, or since we started to watch this, or even as we entered in, how many of us, Send up praise for what the Lord has done for us. How many of our prayers are so much more about what God can do than praise for what Jesus has done? How many testimonies are testimonies of I was a leper? 
I was a dead man walking. And Jesus healed me. How often do you tell Jesus thank you? When's the last time you didn't ask for anything? You just said, I want to thank you. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the late 1800s, he was sharing the gospel of a very talkative woman one time. She was just talking, trying to talk over him, talk over him. And he was sharing the gospel about how Christ would save her. And finally, she just broke out, Oh, Mr. Spurgeon, if Christ should ever save me, he would never hear the end of it. <laughs> he would never hear the end of it. I wonder, has Jesus ever heard the end of it from you? Has that day come when Jesus never hears from you? Thank you, Jesus, for saving my soul, for making me whole. Thank you, Jesus, for giving to me thy great salvation, so rich and so free. The biggest question, my friend, is this application. Ask yourself, have you ever been cured from your spiritual leprosy? Spiritual leprosy. That's the lesson of regeneration by faith alone. Yes, you can be made new. Made brand new. Born again is what Jesus called it. Regeneration. Verse 10. It's by saving faith alone. Jesus said to him, excuse me, verse 19, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. Notice, your faith. It's personal. Your faith. Not your mother's faith, your father's, not someone else's faith. Not the faith of doctrines, but your faith has saved you. This man has come running to Jesus. That's faith. Clinging to Jesus. That's faith. And Jesus said to him, Your faith has saved you. You will live not only in this life, but you are going to live forever. Your faith has saved you. Someone asked, a great theologian one time, they asked him, Doctor, what's the greatest truth you ever learned? What's the greatest theological truth you ever learned? And the man paused and took his glasses, wiped his eyes, his lips began to tremor. And he said, the greatest theological truth I've ever learned is this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Amen. Friend, you can't go deeper than that. For God so loved the world. And let me tell you, there is no depth to those two letters. S-O. For God so loved the world. No one can fathom the depths of the love of God. And your sin cannot go deeper than His love. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. That whoever believes in Him, should not perish, but have 
have right now, present tense, be having everlasting life. But it's faith in Jesus. It's sincere faith. What is faith? It's looking to Jesus. Looking into your religion, looking out to what you do for others, that's not faith. Trust me, you will never find anything in your heart that will bring you confidence of your salvation. Because there's enough sin left in the best of us to start a whole nother hell if there was not one already. Where do you find confidence? Not in yourself. You find it by looking to Jesus, the author and the completer of our faith. He endured the cross, though he despised the shame. You look to him. What is faith? Here's what Tozer, the great Christian thinker and mystic in some ways said, faith is the gaze of the soul on a saving God. That's faith. Faith is where you're looking. And my friend, look to Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus. You may be a leper. You may know yourself a leper. You may feel that leprosy. That's a good thing. That's a work of God's hand and spirit in your heart. But now, look to Jesus who died for sinners. Look to Christ. What is looking? It's believing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Oh friend, do you love Jesus? Do you love him? You say, and not as I should, oh I know, but do you love him? Do you look to him as your savior? Will you look to him right now? Friend, I beg you, look to Jesus right now. Call upon Him by faith. Run to Jesus. Run to Him right now. Run right, right from your heart. Run to Jesus. Run out of the darkness and despair. Run to Jesus. And He will say to you, Arise, go your way. Your faith has saved you. And dear friend, when's the last time we just loved on Jesus?